Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fundamentals Podcast. I am your host, Harley. Joining me today to talk about the amazing works of the legendary filmmaker Peter Jackson, its host of the Green Shirt Podcast, Cameron Harrison. Cameron has brought a first to the Fundamentals podcast, and that is a director. Yes, this is something that he suggested when we got talking, and I instantly loved the idea. I thought it's a chance to look at something completely different in the world of pop culture and understand what it is that people get out of filmmakers and their creativity. This is the kind of conversation where we not only explore the back catalogue of Peter Jackson, talk about the different creative works, but we also understand how he can be a massive inspiration to someone like Cameron, who's an aspiring filmmaker and creative himself. This is one of those conversations that's just super positive, really interesting. I personally didn't know a lot of the information that Cameron gives me, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. So let's get straight into the episode. This is Peter Jackson with Cameron Harrison. Hello, Cameron, and welcome to the Fundamentals Podcast. Well, hello back. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all mine. Now, you've come to me with a first, actually, for Fundamentals. Oh, I do try. Yeah, and that is, uh, well, that is, I guess, the, the discography, if you will, of the amazing director, the award-winning director, Peter Jackson. Oh, Peter Jackson. I came with notes on Michael Jackson. Oh, oh, this is going to be, oh, this, this is awkward. Oh, well, we'll, I mean, ta we'll talk zombies. I was going to say, there, there's some crossover, isn't there? There's some crossover. Yeah, no, you... yes, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fully prepared to talk Sir Peter Jackson to you. Ah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. I did not know that. So, all right then. <laughs> so I guess to, to kick us off, I just want to know for, from your point of view, like when did you first get introduced to his work and sort of what made you want to bring <laughs> him to the show? Yeah, uh, I think... I can remember it actually pretty well. I was in high school and I was pretty well into my horror movie uh, self-education, um, mm -hmm. both just loving film in general and, and horror movies especially. And I read there was an older kid uh, in high school who was telling me, oh, well, you've got to see this one movie. It's, it's the goriest movie ever made, mm -hmm. Dead Alive, brain dead to the rest of the world. But here in the United States, we called it Dead Alive. And I was like, oh, no, yeah, I haven't heard of this. Let's Let's go check it out. Thankfully... The little mm. video store, my small town had it, and uh, it did not disappoint. It lived up to the hype. It I don't know if it's literally the goriest film ever made. I don't know how you quantify mm. or qualify that exactly, but yes, I loved that movie. Mm. And then uh, from there, I think I got into The Frighteners, and then I heard that he was doing this upcoming Lord of the Rings adaptation, and I was like, that's... That's fascinating. How How is the guy who did Dead Alive doing mm. Lord of the Rings? And then I, you know, because the internet found his uh, filmography and was like, oh, this this Heavenly Creatures won a lot of uh, accolades and critical acclaim. Maybe I should check that out. And I mean, we can talk all about all these more in depth later. But the quick overview is I then watched that and was like, I get it. I can see how if you combine this with The Frighteners and Dead Alive, you can... Mm. Uh, you can you can reach Lord of the Rings, and then of course, I mean, the rest is all history. Yeah, I, do, do you know what? There's something I was thinking about today with with him, and the, the just the peripheral knowledge I have is mm -hmm. he feels like something that um, you see quite a bit in Hollywood. 
is you know somebody who starts out as like an indie filmmaker that they, yeah. they go out they hone their craft they do one or two shorts usually like a horror or like a documentary or something that's a bit more niche mm-hmm. but it gets attention because mm-hmm. people people who are i guess in the industry look at it and go oh this is really impressive i see the craft you've put in here and everything what you've done with a usually an absolutely tiny tiny budget so then they go well we have this project coming up would you be interested um and then it's sort of something that you see as they then springboard into like bigger franchises you know you, a lot of the time now you see it with sort of superhero franchises don't you like a well lot yeah just disney in general between up. star wars and marvel yeah they they were yeah. really like finding these critical darlings these indie darlings exactly which is fun yeah yeah so you're right you can kind of see how you build up to that because um yeah well, yeah, no, I mean, thanks for bringing that up because that, I mean, that was a big part of it, too, because I was am uh, an aspiring filmmaker. But I mean, yeah, especially in my teens was like, how do I do this? What what's what's the um, trajectory I'm going to follow? What's the path? And so, yeah, of course, I was really into these uh, auteur indie filmmakers who started just, um, you know, homegrown films, their their garage, their basement films. <clears throat> um. The most famous of which is like, you know, Robert Rodriguez, uh, mm. Sam Raimi, of course. Uh, but Peter Jackson, I, I I feel like he kind of gets left out of that conversation a lot. But yeah, he is absolutely. I mean, Bad Taste is perhaps the most like homemade film of all of these guys' films. Um, it just you watch it and you're like, oh, well, why wasn't I doing this with my friends in the backyard? Like the, it just looks so uh, uh, attainable watching that film. And I wish I kind of seen it more in high school. I didn't get to that one until I think after Lord of the Rings came out um, when they finally re-released them on DVDs as first two. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's absolutely a big, big part of it is just kind of, uh, you know, the 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 hometown boy done good. Mm. And it, I think it, it almost feels a bit more impressive considering where he comes from as well, you know, in one of the smallest, most remote parts of the world mm-hmm. for most mm-hmm. people. and. You know, obviously, you've got people like Taika Waititi and others that are sort of followed suit uh, yeah. from what he's done. But yeah, so I, I guess, and you said, yeah, you've obviously got a background in in horror, and that's how he got started. So, I mean, what do you think it was then about those sort of early sort of horror films? Because I'm I'm not somebody who's big into the genre, but just briefly glancing through them on IMDb, they all seem to have a sort of a slight sort of dark comedic tone to a lot of them. I'm reading a lot of them here in the synopsis, sort of use words like. Uh, yeah, comedy, dark black yeah. comedy, satirical. So do you think there's a sort of like this duality that he brings to these movies that caught people's attention? I think that's fair. Yeah, he uh, he self-describes, I think he coined the term splatstick. His early films are his splatstick films. Right. Where he also says his naughty period. Uh, he's he's <laughs> kind of self-deprecating uh, in that way. But I think, I mean, that. but that is that kind of humor that, yeah, I think he did bring to those films that... Uh, I mean, yeah. We're, well, let's talk about it now. I, I mean, mm. I think I think something that he doesn't get enough credit for that Peter Jackson is a master at, and I mean, he's fumbled at, and we can talk about those situations mm. and why. But I think he's a master of tone. I think he can like he knows the type of story he wants to tell, and he's very good at executing on that. If you watch Bad Taste, like again, mm. it's him with. Um, 12 millimeter whatever like small home bot camera he's got working on the weekends low budget and i mean to to be fair i don't know how he did all the stuff like there are some ingenious camera moves in that film have you watched it 
No, again, it's not. I, I've seen clips, and yeah, mm-hmm. again, I, I know it's one of those that a lot of people praise as like yeah. someone's first early films. There's a scene where he fights himself on like this, this basically sheer cliff phase. And I'm like, I don't know how he did this. I don't know how he planned it. I don't know how he Whoa. executed it. It's pretty impressive. But, uh, but still, again, like, I mean, at this point, he does not understand how to tell a story. Like, as he said, he and his friends were just going out on the weekends and making it up as they went. Uh, you know, it's all post-dubbed. It looks cheap. But, like, he understands that if he hits the right tone with that, if he hits this comedic tone, this black comedy tone that kind of embraces his limitations, mm. then that's what makes this movie work. That's what made the movie, uh, you know, make him... Uh, not a household name, but a, uh, a film circuit name, a festival circuit name, and enabled him to uh, continue from there. So, yeah, and then all of his other movies. I mean, I think going straight to Lord of the Rings, I think that's why. I mean, he's my favorite director, and it's because there's lots of directors who I can look at as, well, they are great at their craft, and they make good movies. But I don't necessarily always feel like they're making movies for me. And there's just something about his combination of uh, epicness and uh, emotional characters and uh, spectacle, but in, and just like kind of wacky, irreverent humor that he injects into things that makes it feel like, oh, this is the movie I would want to make. This is the movie I uh, beat for beat what I want to see. And so, yeah, I think even Lord of the Rings, you get like these kind of cheeky moments of humor that uh, mm. that I think work for many people. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense when you think about it, because Lord of the Rings has been briefly mentioned on the show before. Um, and something I've, I mentioned with the books is that they are incredibly dense, you know, and it's mm-hmm. there's so much detail and there's so much world building. And, and I can imagine if you're, you know, an inspiring filmmaker and, you, and you've done a couple of these like low budget sort of horror things and comedies to to take on something like that it must be sort of like a dream job, but at the same time, something that can be quite anxiety inducing thinking, how on earth do I do that? And the thing that you're something you've just said, which I think is really astute is I've always got from the tone of the Lord of the Rings is how he's, he managed to take something that is so dense and so beloved as well. Like, you know, these are like the fantasy books and he just stripped them down to the most bare basic things that you need to know and at the core of it which is that it's a quest and it's about friendships and relationships and that's i don't know to me that's kind of what makes those films so interesting and enjoyable to watch it's not only all the crazy world building and you know great visuals that he does but that you actually can follow a lot of these characters and on this crazy journey and you care about them and there's lots of like heartfelt moments and as you say sort of irreverent humor and, and odd stuff that fits in but I don't know. I just, I just feel like that's a lot to sort of throw in a movie, and I, I think he does an amazing job with it. Yeah, I think that goes back to the tone again. Like, mm. uh, I mean, bad taste is certainly one tone that he managed to keep that film dead on the whole time. But Lord of the Rings, so many tones he's throwing this yeah. pot and mixing it, and it never feels jarring. We go from like yeah. heartbreak to like epic battle heroism, uh, big ideas to you know the intimate addiction of the ring to. Uh, tossing a dwarf and like it all it all works for me at least yeah it is it's it's uh amazing and so, something i am vaguely aware of is um he's somebody that and it's quite clear i think even if you didn't know this just from watching the films he's someone who obviously is a huge huge fan of the books right yes like, yeah so he's, he's taking these on not as oh this is my chance to be a big 
shot director of more of just like, yes, I love these books and I can film in my backyard, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolutely. I will take this on because it's a passion project more than anything. Well, he seems to have been uh, just very lucky in his career to work on a number of his passion projects. I mean, King Kong, Mm. he's always said was like his number one inspiration and his favorite film. Mm. And lo and behold, he gets to make that after uh, a a failed attempt in the before Lord of the Rings. He was actually attached to Mm. one and you can find his original script for that online. Uh, It's all right. It it reads a lot like the 1999 Mummy, which is fine. I don't remember that many details. I remember that in the beginning, there's there's a lot of uh, World War One like biplane action, and two guys have a baseball catch from their airplanes. Okay, uh, that's pretty much the only detail I remember from the script. But I remember being like, "That's okay." I, I kind of like what we got better. Mm. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, sorry. And then Tintin, of course, he was a huge Tintin fan, and he got to work on that. I I hope one day we get to see his directorial effort at a installment. We'll see. Um, yeah. I, think, I think Thunderbirds is really the only kind of uh, property he's listed a lot as a big inspiration that he hasn't had a chance to work on yet. Really? Yeah. I think he even did a Doctor Who episode. Didn't he direct a Doctor Who episode? Is that on his um, He may have done. I've not seen it on here. I know he was supposed to at least. Yeah. It's not listed, but yeah, hmm. it, it may he may have done. Um, but still, that's incredible. So something I've just picked up on there... You just said um, with King Kong and with like Thunderbirds. I'm guessing animation is is something that he's um, has a soft spot for then, because obviously, again, like I know Lord of the Rings and other stuff, he uses miniatures and uses puppetry. So is that something he's always had a, a fondness for then? Yeah, I mean, practical effects. Ray Harryhausen especially was a big yeah. influence on him, hundred uh, percent. And uh, yeah, I think that you see that come through at least at least up to a point. I think King Kong, the CGI started taking over. Yeah, but. Um, I mean, yeah, I did want to kind of go back to Lord of the Rings with that. I mean, mm. I mean this could easily become the Lord of the Rings podcast, but oh, no, I'll try not to. Go for it. Go for it. Uh, but I mean, that movie is just like, it's kind of a miracle we wound up getting that movie and the way we mm. got it. And I, it really was kind of made at exactly the right time, I feel like. Mm. Any earlier and the technology just wouldn't have been there to to depict that world on screen. And any later, and it would have just been all CGI and, and not felt as tactile as it does. Um, and then, yeah, I think... For whatever, I mean, again, I I don't know how familiar you're, how familiar you are with uh, the story of how it got made, but mm. it was originally going to be a two film uh, deal with Miramax, and then they wanted to make it a one film movie, and then, but it gave him the chance to shop it around. And New Line were like, "Oh, well, this looks great, but isn't it three books? Shouldn't we make three movies?" And and then <laughs> basically it was like, "Here's the money for three movies. Uh, go down to New Zealand, make your movie, and we'll see you on the back end." And kind of let him just do whatever he wanted. Wow. I think because of that, I mean, yeah, these days you would, that would not happen. It would be overseen. It would mm. be five different writers in the room, yeah, uh, overproduced. And here, like, I don't know. There's again, it just has that homegrown feel to it that I think mm. is is part of what everyone loves about the movie. And then yeah. just the talent, like, he, like a lot of the people he brought in were people he brought in from his splat stick days. Richard Taylor, mm. who is his. Um, art director i think or production designer i mean the guy for responsible for making the visual world yeah he came over from i think meet the feebles right uh and is now like this academy award winning uh <laughs> I, I mean i think many people look at him and be like if you want someone to create a world a believable lived in world this is your man mm. uh it's just incredible um and it, i'm not sure about a cinematographer i think he came over from some of his earlier work but 
Andrew Lesney, who we recently lost. But, I mean, everyone is just bringing their A game to Lord of the Rings, so. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something. When you look at the cast, um, just across the board, it, it's it's a, an amazing mix of sort of fresh talent at the time, you know, fairly new young actors in yeah. some of the, the, uh, the roles of like The Hobbits and people like that. And then you've got, you know, like Surya McKellen and Christopher Lee and, you know, all these amazing oh. like legends of, of cinema, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the great thing about it, I think is he's clearly a, a director that knows how to work well with actors. Yeah. You know, like he gets amazing performances out of all of them. Yeah. I mean, some, some, uh, uh career best for sure. I would say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is it. And it's, it's one of those, those sort of trilogies. It's, I'm kind of just thinking about it. I'm almost lost for thinking of um, of adaptations that feel like the definitive adaptation. I think mm. this is one of those, isn't it? That I know Amazon have, have recently bought the rights and are talking about throwing obscene amounts of money at a TV series, <laughs> which I'm sure we're all going to be excited to see what they do. With oh, it. yeah, I'll be there day one for sure. Yeah, but it does feel like these three films in particular, like I don't see how they're going to top them. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I'm glad that they're just you know? telling different stories and not making lord of yeah, the rings that story exactly. again obviously mm. yeah i mean everything gets remade but yeah lord of the rings definitely feels like it's it stands the test of time i mean it's mm. it's kind of crazy to think that it came out over well about 20 years ago right 20 years yeah uh, a couple months ago here. um it's yeah and, and then one after the other as well it was 2001 2002 2003 mm-hmm. which if you're doing that back to back to back is that's so impressive i think just as a feat on its own Right, yeah, he kind of, I mean, it's not the first time that was done, but he, mm-hmm. I think he kind of uh, popularized that idea of doing sequels back to get back, all filming mm-hmm. them all together as one. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just I just think that's incredible, again, for somebody who has, you look at it again, looking at his IMDb now, I'm just seeing, you know, from going from low budget horror films made with your friends mm-hmm. for, you know, 50p and a packet of crisps, as we like yeah. to say over here, to then you're doing a trilogy <laughs> of these incredible books oh. with this ensemble <laughs> cast, and you're doing it for three straight years in a row. Like, yeah, that's insane. Uh, yeah, I, again, I've heard the story of like mm. the process of how you know it went from the different studios. I, I don't know if he's really talked that much about like what made him think he was the man to do this, like how he mm. got the rights. I actually don't, I mean, I know he managed to get the rights from whoever had it. That's a feat in and of itself, I think. Yeah. But yeah, just why he's like, yeah, I think we could do this. And uh, yeah, I think we could do this in two movies, three movies, whatever. Let's let's make it and and just knock it out of the park the way they did. Yeah. Do you think it's um it's a question of just having a clear vision as a director? Because I feel like we had I had this conversation recently um, with uh, Helen O'Hara from Empire about June. And I've mm-hmm. seen June and it's it's very clearly a director's passion project. And like he has a vision and now we're getting a part two. And I feel like if you're going to adapt a book, particularly a, a big book like like this, like Lord of the Rings, like June as examples, I feel like that's something that must help to make it coherent and make it as, I guess, as good as it needs to be, right? As if you could be mm-hmm. Peter Jackson and say, right, not only am I going to take this on, <laughs> not only am I going to do all of this, but I know exactly how I want this to go. And I know which right. bits I'm going to pick out and I'm, I'm going to be, this is basically my vision and that's it. And I guess because of where he was at the time and at the time that he was making these movies, he was like, I'm halfway around the world. I'm just going to carry on down here and do my thing and 
have as little interference as possible. Do you think all of that sort of mixed in just helped to make it as incredible as it was? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, a lot of the actors have said that it felt like they were making a homegrown backyard movie. And so I think mm. like that's probably added to the comfort level for him. And uh, and I think helped foster the community and the creativity that you needed. I think uh, to his credit again, I mean, like his skill as a director, it comes back to that tone. Like he can obviously clearly communicate to everyone who needs to hear it, like his vision. When he's making bad taste, he can explain to his friends, look, don't take this too seriously. Play it at this level. Don't go too big, mm. but you could go really, really big at this level. And and I think here is clearly communicating to everyone, this is the type of movie we want to make. This is, we're not making a fantasy movie. We are making a historical uh, a record. So mm. when you make these props and these sets, don't think of them as props and sets. Think of them as they all have a history to them. And here's the, thankfully we have all this text that tells you all the history of everything. Mm. And, and then uh, to take, I, I mean, so that's to his credit, but also to his credit is he obviously hired great people to surround himself with. And he could say, that's my vision, Richard Taylor, make the sets look great. Uh, mm. This is how I want to look, Andrew Lesney. Obviously, you're a genius and can make a, just an amazingly beautiful looking film. And and Howard Shore's score, how did we come yes. this long without mentioning the score? <laughs> so good. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely is one of those. It's like instantly recognizable. You hear the first few notes yeah. and you go, yeah, that's Lord of the Rings. You know, straight well, away. <laughs> first few notes of like... A, a dozen different themes like there's the mm. the ring theme there's the fellowship theme there's each uh, culture and uh, land has its own theme and yeah you recognize all of them mm. so oh the shire i mean yeah we just we just turn on <laughs> the first film just to let the shire scenes play and like you just feel good you feel cozy and warm yeah yeah and that's kind of the amazing thing i think about that is, is one part is like you said it, each part of it has a very distinct feel and it feels mm -hmm. lived in mm -hmm. and that's i think that's incredible if you can do that if you can bring a book to life in that way when you're sort of traveling and and it's in a way that's when you're watching it it's it's clear when you're in a new place if that makes any sense mm -hmm. so like it's you don't you never feel lost i find when you're watching those movies it's really clear everywhere has such a distinct feel from the way it's shot to the way it's designed to the way as you say the music changes that when these characters are hopping around especially when you get into the sequels because everybody splits off mm -hmm. it could be mm -hmm. so easy to get lost right you could be going wait who am i with now what's that but it's you're never lost because you're like oh yeah we're straight back here now we're, oh, we're back in the shire we're back in um you know the black tower like you, you know straight away where all the characters are because of all of these ingredients coming together and i mean again an incredible feat for him to pull off yeah yeah and again like just that homegrown feel like he mm. he does like it's got a big Hollywood scope feel to it, but there are moments where he like throws in these weird wide angle lens shots that just kind of mm. add a character to the film that prevents it from getting lost in all the other big blockbuster action films. And even to the point where like uh, there's a shot where where Aragorn's sword knocks the camera as they're walking by, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> it, maybe it takes you out, but it also like. Even though you know this is a fantasy, even though you know these are actors in costumes with fake swords, it still it, it reminds you that like, but these are dudes out walking in the woods. Like there's mm. this is a camera in the woods with dudes walking through. And that's something you don't always get with movies nowadays, where you just kind of feel they're all in like the big green 
green yeah. screen bubble that uh, Mandalorian has has made. And mm. yeah, for sure. I mean, I want to come back to something you said um, earlier. You felt that these this particular film was like the way that you would like to do it. Like you saw this and mm-hmm. thought, oh, this is the version that you know. If I had the money and the, the scope, mm-hmm. this is what I do. So. What do you mean by that? Then, when you sort, what what is it about it specifically that makes you feel that way? Yeah, I guess it's just it's kind of comes back to what we've been saying about mm. uh, just bringing all of his sensibilities for like again, it's crazy that you can watch Bad Taste and be like, I see the seeds of Lord of the Rings in here, mm. um, both in the shot selection and the energy. But so I, I think I feel like there was a moment in the Two Towers where there's a shot. Uh, you know, the our, our trio of man, dwarf, and elf are after Pippin and Mary, and, and uh, Mary and Pippin just uh, nearly avoided uh, being captured and eaten by, by orcs or goblins. And there's a big fight, and the trio are distraught and looking for them. And uh, there's the shot that just it pans back, and there's just a severed orc head on a pike. Mm. And there's something about that shot that I was like, you're really leaning into your horror roots here. It's yeah. also kind of like a chinky, cheeky, funny moment. And it's just, it's that balance of horror and humor in a larger, emotionally rich story that I love. Like, mm-hmm. that's just, again, I, I, that just, it feels, and again, I, everyone loves Lord of the Rings and everyone I'm sure feels a personal connection to it. But mm-hmm. yeah, just when he makes his movies, I'm like, yeah, that's the, that's the weird type of twisty, twisted joke I would want in this scene. And uh, without sacrificing the the larger themes and arcs of the story Mm. that seems like a really hard thing to do as well right if you want to put your own spin and twist and flavor on it if you will exactly i I guess i I guess that's what i'm saying is like in these big films he manages to bring his own personal spin and twist and it just happens to be a spin and twist that i enjoy a lot (laughs) awesome no I, i can totally get on board with that and I have seen a little bit of the behind the scenes. I mean, I'm aware it's one mm-hmm. of those series of films that if you get the, the box sets, I know the documentaries are like longer than the films themselves. Oh, Harley. Oh, these, they were such a part <laughs> of my life. I, yeah. I, I came, I, I haven't mentioned those yet. Yeah. It, it was, but like every Christmas between 2001 and 2005, I think is when the return of the King extended edition DVD came out. It was just like, a bonus Christmas because we would have the movies in December and then the following December, they would release the extended edition DVDs with the appendices behind the scenes. Yeah. And yes, this was my early twenties still like hungry to become a filmmaker. I was devouring those. Yeah. They are longer than movies and just as enthralling, just as engaging. I think each movie has like four different commentaries, which I listened to all of them. And yeah, it was just, it was so much fun, like delving into the, the how of the films as much as enjoying the films on their, their surface level. I I'd imagine extremely inspiring, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause again, like they just kept talking about how it felt like a, a backyard film and like you would see how they would do the things and sometimes super complex, but a lot of times, a lot of the, the, the effects were like, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I could do that with a, a, a little bit of a budget. Sure. 
Interesting. And and yeah, just kind of breaking down again, you look at those films and you think like, how could any one person manage that? And of course, it wasn't just one person. But sure. yeah, you just you, you take each you take each character. This is his arc. This is what they need. You take each setting. This is the Shire. This is what this is going to feel like. Now we'll tackle, uh, you know, uh, Moria, Mordor, Gondor, like, yeah, you just take them every piece at a time and then make sure they all fit together as one larger tapestry. Right. And I feel like as well with these films, not only did they do everything that we've just discussed, which is you know already a massive achievement mm-hmm. themselves, but they were critically and commercially extremely successful. I mean, Academy Award winning some of yeah. these films, you know, and to come back to something you said earlier, they were pushing forward technology mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. film, which it's something that you see in like, if you, you know, if you were to make a list of like the sort of most important films in like the last hundred years, I feel sure. like you'd have to include the Lord of the Rings, right, in that in that discussion. I think that would be a fair inclusion. Yeah, again, like just the the uh, the process of maybe filming uh, multiple films back to back when they're part of a whole, mm-hmm. um, and then and then yeah, they they used a lot of technology. I mean, yeah, the whole motion capture he ushered in like the whole Andy Serkis uh, yeah. era of motion capture filmmaking, which I think is is great i love that i do kind of have a spotty uh i I think he has a spotty history when it comes to uh embracing certain technologies Mm. um some which i and the world have uh either embraced or not you know he had his whole hdr high frame rates uh yes yeah he was pushing for the hobbit and like that that never came to fruition Mm. and i think uh he he would really dove into the uh the 3d realm which i always predicted would would be a bubble that would bust and it seems to have Mm. but i guess that's that's part of sort of being a a director like this you know just have to take swings i guess right and yeah i mean i i certainly don't uh begrudge him yeah he 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 took chances on him and they didn't pull off uh he took chances on things in lord of the rings that did pay off so yeah i mean the motion capture i have to say for me personally uh andy circus is one of my favorite actors absolutely um and we're talking about awards those series of films massively overlooked for his work yes. i think yeah when you consider oh, what yeah. he did and like you say that the way the technology's pioneered since then and what he just as an actor on his own has done with it it's yeah phenomenal right yeah at the time the academy didn't know what to do with him uh, <laughs> they still don't really but i think yeah. i think it's getting closer there to uh, being able to uh, award actors for those types of performances i mean look if he can play like a weird hobbit you know, with a sort of addiction and then a, a yeah. giant ape in another film and then a, you know, a, a sort of gun-wielding, ape. Yeah, yeah, talking ape in another film. I make you care about all of those performances. I mean, oh. if that's not acting, what is, right? Oh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is such a good film. Uh-huh. It's uh, perhaps like the best second installment in a in a franchise, I think. Oh, yeah. If, if, if Yeah. For me, if you were talking about definitive trilogies, I would put that in this list. In this I think that's fair. Because it's phenomenal and again it where did it start from well it started from the technology that peter jackson took a chance on i guess and thought yeah let's try this out and got a guy from london to come in and have a go and I, mm-hmm. I, yeah i mean you can tell me you've seen all the behind the scenes i can imagine a lot of people <laughs> might have felt a little perhaps sort of trepidatious initially and gone oh is this gonna work we don't know right yeah i remember even i being at the time being like Oh, they're doing Gollum CGI. I don't know. Couldn't they? Couldn't they find an actor and do the makeup? I was still very mm. skeptical of CGI at the time, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Gollum is a testament to to the technology. 
Mm. And, you know, they didn't sacrifice the performance either for it. Right. Yeah, phenomenal. Um, I mean, that kind of leads me on to something I want to ask you because he sort of then took that same technology and CGI, and you mentioned it earlier, mm-hmm. and then took it into his next big project, which was King Kong. So, King I mean, Kong. What, what do you think of that film? Because I, I find it, I find it quite interesting when I saw it. Yeah, I think that's a fair descriptor. I I've always described it as a great big glorious mess of a film. Um, <laughs> it's it's definitely not as good as the Lord of the Rings. It's definitely not as uh, he doesn't have as. Tw- quite a grip on the rudder as he has on his previous films. I think that's the first one that kind of starts to slip from him. Well, not counting meet the feebles. We can talk about that in a bit, (laughs) but, uh, but, but like what, what works in that film works so good. And it is just such a journey of a film that even if it, not every scene, every aspect of it works great, right. It's still just a great, great, like that film feels like cinema. Um, Like that's yeah. a movie you got to see in the in the cinema, and it it's it is spectacle with a capital S. Uh, I think what he got right in that film was the Kong and Anne story, which was the story he had to get right to make the movie work, and I think that works fantastically. Yeah, uh, just I mean, going back to Andy Serkis, and I mean, let's give Naomi Watts her due too, but yeah, uh, yeah, because that works, I think the movie manages to uh, to be a success. Absolutely. Um... And again, from what you said before, it's another one of these, like the Lord of the Rings, it's a passion project, right? Yeah, yeah. And you can see that too, I think. You can see, I mean, maybe to a fault, like he has spent his entire life thinking of the type of King Kong movie he would want to make and then just put all those ideas into one movie. Mm. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Do you reckon he maybe looked at the sort of sales of the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings and thought, well, people are wanting to see more, (laughs) so maybe I'll just... I'll bypass that this time and just put it in the film. <laughs> just not the uh, director's know, cut. <laughs> good. I, I think he does. I think there is an extended version of Kong, actually. Seriously? There is, I think, yeah. What more yeah. do we have left to film? <laughs> I, I forget the differences, but yeah, there are. And I mean, the production diaries on that also were yeah. great, just the behind the scenes for that. It was also great. Uh, I love anytime you get to see Andy Serkis's face, too, because I think he's a great mm. actor outside of the motion capture suit. Oh, yeah. So any chance I get to see him... Um, yeah, I mean, he, he should just put that in his contract. If you're going to have me in a motion capture suit, cast me as another character, a human character as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And, um, Jack Black, I mean, I just remember being super excited about the cast. I thought that was a really good use of Jack Black. Yeah. Uh, making yeah. him like a 1930s uh, egotistical film director. Like, that's great. That's that's the mm. role Jack was born to play. <laughs> and Adrian Brody is like the uh, swashbuckling, machine gun wielding uh, hero. Yeah, it's, it's, it was all it was all great. Yeah, no, it was. It's um, for sure, and, I, and it definitely. I think there are certain moments in that film that you can, you know, definitely see him leaning into his horror roots as well. You know. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean that that is the movie he was born to make. It's got the humor. It's got the adventure. It's got the the scope and spectacle, of mm. course. Um, I think I think that's probably what he's attracted to the most. Right. Awesome. And I guess I kind of after that, he sort of. I've just noted here. I did, and I genuinely did not know this until we had this discussion. Okay. He directed the Lovely Bones. He did. Yeah. I did not know that. That is kind of like his forgettable one. I I like mm. the Lovely Bones. I remember I was actually on a holiday in Europe. 
uh, when I read it, I think we were backpacking through and just kind of ran out of money. So we we're just like hanging out in cheap, uh, cheap hostels. And that book was there. And I was like, well, I've heard good things about this book. And then I think it was yeah. only uh, like six months later, he was attached to direct it. And I was like, oh, I read that. That's I could I could see him doing that with all the uh, fanta fantasy sequences. And yeah, because it's, it's an unusual story for, for anyone who doesn't know. It's the story of I'm just reading straight from IMDb here. Go for it. Um, centers on a girl who has been murdered, but the twist is she's watching over her family essentially from purgatory, right? Um, yeah, some yeah, which is um, uh, which she can kind of create to make her own. I mean, it's called mm. purgatory, maybe, but it's it feels like heaven because she can create any sort of uh, world she wants. So there's yeah. intercut with all these fantastical uh, heaven type settings that she's creating for herself. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a really strange one. Um, I think it was Sasha Ronan's, like, big breakout role. That's I'm right, sure. yeah. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, my wife hates Stanley Tucci now because of that film. <laughs> that is she, she cannot stand. She she will hate on great actors just because they play pervs in a movie. Yeah, it's good. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of the Tucci here. I absolutely love I think the man's sure. incredible. But, yeah, he is. It's an amazing performance. I'll say that much. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah. Anybody, it's it's very chilling. <laughs> uh, yeah, but have you have you seen Heavenly Creatures? No, I have not. So oh, Harley, was... you've got to watch Heavenly Creatures. It's that... so good, and The Lovely Go Bones on. is a definitely a spiritual successor to that. I mean, it's yeah, definitely easy to see uh, why he would get into that. Which I guess uh, with uh, Heavenly Creatures and probably The Lovely Bones, that was uh, his uh, not his wife, but his life partner Fran Walsh, who's his co screenwriter, uh, really pushed him into heavenly creatures to tell that story and i'm imagining had a lot of influence on the lovely bones as well yeah i'm just having a quick look at it now and yeah it seems quite similar actually yeah another one is like yeah it's a crime drama but with a a sort of vague supernatural twist i guess yeah a fantasy world in the protagonist's heads yeah 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 i mean the the cast looks great on here as well yeah kate winslet Uh, i mean diana kent that's not too oh yeah, savvy. I think it was Kate Winslet's first film. Uh, Melanie Linsky. I love Melanie Linsky. Uh, yes, ever, because yeah. of because of Heavenly Creatures and like I know she doesn't get huge roles now, but anytime I see her in anything, I'm like, there she is. Mm. That's interesting. So yeah, that's that's quite an interesting mix he's got here. So you've got fantasy, you've got crime drama, you've got horror, mm-hmm. sort of I guess monster movie. If you were to put King Kong into something <laughs> like that. Oh, oh, the, all the his genres, yeah, all the genres, sure. yeah. I mean, what, what, what do you think is sort of left in the tank for him to do? That's different. Well, obviously, uh, historical documentary is obviously what's been yes. driving him recently. Yeah. Which I, I as a Peter Jackson fan, I have not seen either uh, Get Back or uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. Mm. It's a mouthful of a title, which I love, but I can never remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to see them both. Uh, they Shall Not Grow Old is, uh, I mean, that that's like a technology that I'm excited about that he's been embracing. It's like, I, I mean, I'm not supportive of colorizing old black and white films, but for mm. documentary purposes, I think taking these old jittery images that, I mean, that's how we see, like growing up, that's what we thought like the 1920s looked like, right? Like, yeah. Just people walking all fast across streets and everything being washed <laughs> out and adding yeah. like the, the color and the motion correctness to just make it feel like you're watching a, a someone's smartphone footage of, of these forgotten times is 
is super exciting. So I do, I want to see that one a lot. I just, you know, between kids and uh, pandemic, I haven't been able to seek that one out. And then get back uh, like eight hours. I just don't have the time. You know, I uh, like the Beatles. Like if it were yeah. Queen or David Bowie, I would be there. I would, okay. you know, lock the kids in their rooms and I would <laughs> make time for it. But the Beatles, I'm like, <laughs> when I'll get to it eventually. Yeah, I, I will say, actually, I have heard from people that I know and trust who have seen it, and they said it's incredible. Like, yeah. it's, it's one of those documentaries that, it's you know, when you're talking about the Beatles, I mean, we've, we've done the Beatles on this show. There's been so mm-hmm. much on them. And when you say, okay, yeah, you're doing another documentary about the Beatles. But apparently what he's managed to get a hold of with the footage and the way he's done it, you used it to tell a story. It's mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it captures some really rare moments. And it, it, apparently it captures a side of the Beatles that I think many people forget about, which is kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, the end of the road. Because a lot of people, when it comes to bands and things like that, people tend to talk about, you know, the glory days and, you know, oh, what would it be like mm-hmm. to be in a studio with them doing the White Album and all this stuff? But you forget, like, it, it fell apart. And it fell apart for a reason. And apparently, like, mm-hmm. this is, it manages to toe the line of sort of, being quite honest and showing you that, but also showing, I guess, well, the reason why there were the Beatles. You know, it still shows you the talent. It captures moments that, yeah, we're just, we were fortunate enough to get on camera. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder what else he'll do, do with, with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if this is the beginning of a trend for him. I mean, it makes sense, especially, I, th- I think... Um... I mean, for the pandemic, of course, to just focus on like a documentary that you can do in an edit suite. But also, mm. I mean, kind of going back to Kong. Yeah. I think one of the reasons that film does lose its way a little bit mm. is because he had just come off the epic Lord of the Rings. And I there was something with Kong. I think like they push it up a year, the production. It was really rushed. It was kind of thrust on him. I think, it was, I think that was the case is they were like, do you want to do King Kong? And he's like, sure. And they said, well, you've got to start in two months or whatever. And he said, do I have to? And they said, if you want to do King Kong. And he's like, I want to do King Kong. So he kind of jumped into it, uh, you know, without taking a breather from Lord of the Rings mm. and um, and without probably the prep he needed. Mm. Which I, then going back to Lovely Bones, I think it's probably why he went for a smaller scale film after Kong was just to take a break. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, since then, he's followed uh, everything up with having The Hobbit thrust upon him, which he wasn't <laughs> planning to direct and, uh, yeah. and all the headaches that brought. And so I think he is probably just taking some time for himself and being like, let's just stay in the edit bay and make some films from here for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And like you say, if he's playing with technology, you know, and uh, they shall not grow old and. And then going through archival footage of one of the biggest yeah. bands in the world and telling a yeah. story. That makes sense. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, it seems like the, a, a lot less labor intensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And what sounds does sound appealing for Get Back uh, to me is it does sound kind of like his appendices, the behind the scenes for Lord of the Rings, is that mm. it does feel like it's that very fly on the wall. Yeah. It's it's almost as if you were here type of uh, feel that I do love in my my documentaries and behind the scenes stuff what what are your thoughts then on on the hobbit talking about that trilogy because sure. that feels almost like it, it's a very interesting series of films especially when you stack them up against lord of the mm-hmm. rings right 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say mistakes were made, but I will mm. defend those movies. I think they're <laughs> great. I love them. I think I think the first right. one holds up uh, head and shoulders to the original trilogy. I do love uh, An Unexpected Journey quite a bit. I think that movie works really well. Mm. The second two do kind of go off the rails a little bit, but at the it, they feel like Kong to me. They're a great big glorious mess. Like, does right. everything work? No. Mm. Does the main thrust of the story that he wants to tell work? beautifully was i in tears at the end of the five battles absolutely like mm. i i uh yeah i wish i wish some uh different choices had been made but overall i, I definitely enjoyed the uh the continued journey he was going on. I, I do remember sitting in uh, i got to see uh the first two yes i i got to see the first two at a uh, 24-hour movie marathon called but numathon that uh harry knowles from the ain't it cool site would put on every year okay and uh they had uh peter jackson came in and no introduced him and did a q and a afterwards i got to ask him about the uh griddles in the dark scene and uh hear him talk about that that was actually the first scene they filmed yeah i heard uh, that so that mm. so that andy circus could do his role and then andy circus became a second unit director after that mm. and is now a director on his own right uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that seeing that with like you know a packed audience full of people who love these movies yeah. uh, was quite quite an experience. I know that there were mixed reactions to The Hobbit afterwards, but I I loved. It. I remember seeing in the theater, and it, it just dawning on me going back to that like how the Lord of the Rings was kind of a Christmas tradition. Every year I had some new Lord of the Rings. Uh, I was like, I realized I hadn't had that since the Lord of the Rings, and I realized like. I'm going to have that again. I'm going to have the Hobbit and then the extended edition and then the next one and the mm. next one. And yeah, it filled up another four years of uh, Christmas traditions for me. <laughs> ho, ho, ho bit. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I like him. I do. I wish, I mean, if, if I were making them, I would, I wish that he had done the Hobbit in two books and two movies. Yeah. Excuse me. And then the third movie have been like now we'll tell what's going on with Gandalf and and uh, Mirkwood and everything. I think that mm. would have worked better than kind of intersplicing them all together. I get what he was doing, but I do think it lost the the narrative thread at its points. Yeah, it it felt like um it's really the opposite challenge, isn't it? Instead of taking three incredibly dense books and yeah. stripping them down, it's you take one fairly dense book and then stretch it. It's a it weird out, book, you know. Yeah. 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 It's a weird book, yeah, because everyone talks about like the page count and everything, and I'm like, mm. yeah, but have you read The Hobbit? Because it's a kid's book, and yeah. the tone is very different. So I mean, I, yes. one he had to, mm. he had to balance the tone of a children's book with like with these comical trolls and and mm. and almost nameless. I mean, they all had names, but all the dwarves were interchangeable. Mm. Like it was a mon I mean, honestly, adapting The Hobbit is probably tougher than adapting Lord of the Rings. Uh, so you've got to mix that tone with the tone of the films you've already established because you want them to, to exist in the same universe. Yeah. And then when you read The Hobbit, a lot happens in that book. Mm. It's not as dense because it's being told for children, but it's got just as much stuff happening that's all integral to the plot, or yeah. at least iconic that you would be shunned if you didn't put in. Mm. Uh, like people talk about the Battle of the Five Armies and like that was one chapter of the book and they made a two and a half hour movie out of it. Well, did you read the chapter? Because in it, all these armies show up. It promises to be something epic mm. and, and spectacular. And then Bilbo gets hit on the head and misses out on the entire battle. And then gets woken <laughs> up and basically told like a Reader's uh, Digest version of what happened. And yeah. 
are you telling me that's what you want from yeah. your the end yeah, of yeah. this epic series of films is for our main character to just get unconscious and us not see what happened? Yeah. But when you hear what happened, when he's told what happens, it's a movie's worth of stuff. It is a battle of five armies. Like, mm. so yeah. I don't. I, I think there's a lot of unfair criticism laying at that those films. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I remember seeing them and, and liking them for the most part. And you know, again, it's it's sort of. I think they did the best they could with a lot of it. Yeah. I, I have seen a little like five minute YouTube sort of behind the scenes thing, which is quite interesting, where it talks about mm-hmm. how there were times where they were just filming stuff and they weren't quite sure what they were going to use it for. And I thought that yeah. was quite, and I think, do you know what? To their credit, fair play being able to take that and put it in the film and it actually, it does kind of fit into the plot. Man, Harley, that's absolutely true. Because again, going back to the behind the scenes, also amazing in the Hobbit films. If nothing mm-hmm. else, if you're not a huge fan of the Hobbit films, we got another six dvds of appendices uh they are amazing to watch and kind of almost more fascinating because lord of the rings because it seemed like everything went very smoothly with lord of the rings i mean Mm. as can be expected on a giant film set shoot but yeah with the hobbit there were some big issues that i think did uh contribute to some of those poor decision making that and i forget the details but yeah there was things were getting changed last minute um Mm. and and again like he wasn't planning to direct him. He kind of had a direct jump into the director's chair last minute. And so, yeah, you see like that entire scene with Smaug and the lonely mountain, like they were making it up as they went. Basically they had like, they had to pause production. They said, this isn't written yet because we are suddenly turning these two movies into three movies. Mm. We've got to write a, a finale for this. And yeah, the fact that they were able to pull it off as well as they did, like that, that is a testament, I think like, mm when you put it in the context of the adversities they were trying to overcome, it's pretty impressive. And I'll say this, I loved um, the performance capture that mm-hmm. they used for Smaug and with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. I, I genuinely thought it was brilliant. I was watching it, I thought, oh. cool, they, they've been using the technology they've used to absolute perfection before and are doing it again. So, you know, credit there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, that, that, when, when you know you're doing The Hobbit, we're all waiting for the dragon to show up. And at least when he shows up, it's not disappointing, right? Absolutely. Again, like he knows what he has to get right. And yeah. I think he, he always manages to get that. Yeah, and I don't know. People complain about uh, like Legolas and, and, and uh, Evangeline uh, Lily's character. Mm. And, I mean, one, Legolas makes sense. Like he his character would have been around, so why not give us the Easter egg? Yeah. Why turn him into such a big character? I will say part of me was watching that and being like, as someone who's read the book a number of times, uh, who's like first taste of uh, um, the spotlight. I, I mean, it was, it was the first play I did in third grade. I was, I was one of the dwarves in the Hobbit and that mm. was kind of my first taste of like wanting to get into the world of storytelling and right. theater and film. Um, so yeah, I mean the Hobbit, I mean, I was, very familiar with it and, and then these these moments started happening in the film and i was like i have no idea what's going to happen this is kind of exciting <laughs> like what the hobbits are getting or the dwarves are splitting up legolas is here orlando bloom is jumping around shooting orcs with arrows i did not see this coming and mm. it's i kind of enjoyed having that kind of moment of surprise in in a story that i know so well it's like watching uh, the new wheel of time series okay uh, yeah, which I think is a great series in its own right. And it does take a lot of liberties with at least the first book, but that felt fresh to me. It was like, great. I'm, I feel like it's close enough that it feels like Wheel of Time, but it's different enough that I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Hmm. No, I, I like that perspective. That's a, 
that's a very nice way of looking at an adaptation, actually. Well, thank you. Thank you, Harley. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, it's what you got to do. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to tear your hair out because nothing's going to be an exact one for one. Well, exactly. And this is something I've, I've talked a little bit about with previous topics of like, you know, you're never going to please everyone, are you, when it comes sure. to adaptation? And But I also think, yeah, if if you're going in as a, as a film director, I mean, you have to remember these are artists. These are people that have their mm-hmm. own creative spark and feel, as, as we've already established. So if they were coming into either, you know, Lord of the Rings, King Kong, whatever it was, The Hobbit, and they just did a, a page-for-page for page remake, you know, exactly mm-hmm. as the book, I'm sure it would be quite cool. It'd but be interesting. It would, it would be interesting, yeah. But it, it would be also kind of boring, especially if you're a fan, because you'd be like, yeah. well, I know what's going to happen next, and I might as well just go yeah. home and read the book, you know? <laughs> well, it's like Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake, right? Like, right. what a fascinating experiment. I'm glad he did it. Like, I think there's a lot to, mm. as a, a student of film, you can learn from that. Right. But I'm never going to choose that over the original. No, no. Like, like you're never going to be like, well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't stand apart as its own film in any ways. Mm. It's an experiment. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's a really interesting way of looking at it and a, a more positive outlook, I'd say, on, on adaptations. So, no, I'm, I'm glad you've brought that up. Well, that's that's my gift then. My gift to your listeners. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's kind of in line with what this show is about, which is to be more open-minded to things. And mm. yeah, you said, even if you watch it and go, oh, I, I didn't enjoy that as, as much. You don't have to be one of these people that then jumps online and complains about it for hours. You know, you could just kind of go, that wasn't for me. Right. You know, yeah. But yeah, I do know people who like, they'll say they hate a movie and you're like, oh, well, why? And then they only talk about like one aspect of the movie right. over and over. And you're like, wow, you're really, you're really hung up on this shot of feet or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 And it's like, there's, there's a whole other pantheon of stuff you could talk yeah. about. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. And, and like you say, given the behind the scenes, given that, you know, to his credit, he didn't really want to do it, but he was kind of thrown in at the last minute and he, you know, shared directing duties with a, you know, by this time, a, a friend in the industry. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, it's, yeah. it's amazing that they're as good as they are, right? I, I, I think that's true. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you get see, like, I think the riddle in the dark scene is just one of the perfect scenes of film history. I mean, I, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big statement, but I just, I just think it's like from beginning to end, like that scene is so well-crafted. Yeah. No, you're right. And it's, it's remarkably mm. close to the book actually, but like mm. they're able to really kind of, because I've, I've read the book to my, my, my kid, he's, he loves Gollum. And so he always wants me to read that chapter. And I try to do the <laughs> voices and like, I don't, it's, it, the the syntax of the writing is so weird and i don't really always know how to get across what's being said and then you watch that scene you're like oh well andy circus did he knew Mm. exactly what Gollum was trying to get across uh so good so good absolutely amazing yeah i I love all of this stuff and and martin freeman is bilbo i think i mean that that character that performance there's so many gifts that those films give that yeah if, if the story gets a little unwieldy at times yeah I mean, just just focus on the good stuff. You talked about the interchangeable dwarfs. I mean, one that does stand out is Richard Armitage. You know, I think he's, oh, he's absolutely yeah. phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, my introduction to that actor, and yeah, now I see him in everything and love him. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, my wife and I were watching a, a series on Netflix the other night, and he popped up in it. And that was the first thing I thought of was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember watching the Hobbit series and going, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. He's, he's still working yeah. with, with great talent. 
yeah, that scene at the end of the first film between him and Bilbo, uh, mm. where you know he like I forget the line, but where Bilbo thinks he's going to be mad, and he's like, no. When Bilbo realizes that he belongs with this party, because that's mm. that's what's so great for me about the first film is it has a very clear arc. It is Bilbo's journey to to believing in himself, believing that he does belong with this group and on this journey. And I tear up every time I watch it between those two. Like mm. the performances is so good. And throwing, yeah. I mean, again, Howard Church's music, the the cinematography, everything's just clicking along. It really is. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Um, he's just reminded me of something. It's kind of unrelated, but I just want to bring up anyway, if, mm -hmm. with, with behind the scenes stuff um, with Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite ever behind the scenes stories from any film is from Return of the King. Um, and I think it's in the extended edition where you see Saruman's death. Um, mm, so in the, mm -hmm, in, the mm -hmm. in the book, and I believe in the film, he's he's stabbed and he falls to his death. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I encourage people to go and look up. You can probably find Peter Jackson talking about this on YouTube. It's amazing. I think I know what you're talking about. You know, I'm yeah. going with this. But yeah, he um, yeah. he went up to uh, Christopher Lee and was sort of in between takes and was like, "Yeah, is there any way you can sort of you know make a bit more of a noise or sort of you know like a grunt <laughs> or a scream?" And Christopher Lee, in, in so many words, just turned around and was basically said to him. Do you know what it sounds like when somebody is stabbed in the back? Because I do. <laughs> and Peter yeah. Jackson was like, okay, all right. Do you know what? Right. Okay, I'll back off. <laughs> That's right. You were basically in the British Secret Service in World War II. Yeah. You would know. You, yeah. you are a badass. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Um, I think I think he even does it. his like uh, his Christopher Lee impression yeah. when he's telling that story. Peter, <laughs> do you know what it means? Because I do. <laughs> like, yeah. You can imagine it in oh, that I, voice. You'd be like, Okay. All right. Yep. <laughs> as, as you were. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> I'll just go over here with to my cameras and stuff and let you do your thing. <laughs> yeah. When Wormtongue rises up and comes up behind Saruman to stab him, um, of course, it was my job as director to talk to Christopher Lee and to explain to him what I what I wanted. So I started to go into this long explanation about what sort of sound he should make when he got stabbed. I seem to recall that I did say to Peter, "Have you any idea?" what kind of noise happens when somebody is stabbed in the back and i said because well, i do it's because the breath is driven out of your body he proceeded to sort of talk about some very clandestine part of world war ii he used to be in the the british secret service whatever they were called the oss he seemed to have expert knowledge of exactly the sort of noise that they make and so i just sort of didn't push the subject any further. I just said, well, you obviously know what to do, Christopher, so I'm sure you'll do it great. And he did. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, I know I've derailed our conversation, but I just, that just popped into no. my head. Um, that's, that's, uh, yeah, the thing, it's funny, too, because, man, people love these movies, Lord of the Rings movies. Um, and, and people who, you know, were just babies when they came out uh, still love them. And people who are not into film have watched those behind the scenes and listened to those commentaries. It's mm. It's amazing, like... There's something about the films that inspire people who aren't even uh, movie nerds like like us to to delve deeper. Yeah, and that's exciting. That's that's a gift, I think. Absolutely, and I guess it comes back to what you were saying earlier that, that there is this kind of mix of homegrown. You know, famously, we know he's he's from New Zealand. He's filming in his mm -hmm. own backyard. There's all this practical effects. There's new technology. There's a mix of actors. I guess all of that feels inspiring right it feels like you look at it and you go mm -hmm. this is possible you know yeah I, I could do this conceivably this guy's managed it so why not me 
And it's a story that's more interesting. It's it's yeah. the story of how it was made is again is just as interesting as there's the story being told. This is it. I mean, what do you think of I just seen his his latest announcement um as I believe a Tintin sequel because that's him diving into the world of animations. If I remember correctly, mm-hmm. the first one that came out a few years ago, which is fantastic, may I say. Oh yeah. I like it. I like it a lot. That's a team effort between him and Spielberg, right? Yeah, and I think um Joe Cornish, does he work with the script? Maybe. Yeah, let's have I a look. I feel like there's a third person kind of involved. But yeah, I know the plan was he helped produce Spielberg directed the first mm. and then uh and then they were gonna flip it for the second one was he was gonna direct and like all through the uh the for 2014, 2015 they were talking about it and it just kind of fell away. Mm. Uh I don't think the first one did incredibly well at the box office. I don't think it was a huge flop, but it definitely wasn't a success, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I love it. I think just while we're talking about Peter Jackson, I mean, again, we should say that he helped bring back the Spielberg we love, I feel. Like, I feel mm. The Adventures of Tintin was the first, like, ad- like fun Spielberg we'd gotten in a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he, he'd done good stuff, but it had been a while since The Last Crusade. And... Uh, and it, it felt like that youthful Spielberg was back. It felt like he was excited about the medium of filmmaking again. Mm. And yeah, I, th- I think that's all on the screen. So thank you, Peter Jackson, for giving us that. And then, yeah, I would still, I'd love to see his take on it at some point. Yeah, well, that, that's apparently that's what's been announced. So who knows? Who knows what, what we'll Is get? Is that on IMDb? Yeah, yeah, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I, I know are... it's one of those like maybe, but I, I'd love to see it. Because um, again, I just, I remember watching it and being absolutely amazed at how mm-hmm. good it was because um yeah like you said it didn't do very well i saw it sort of after it came out of the cinema and just sort of watching it's like why did we not see this in the cinema this is incredible mm. <laughs> this is just mm-hmm. such a good movie and and so to go back to what you just said a minute ago yes joe cornish is one of the writers along with okay. uh edgar wright and Stephen moffat which oh okay okay they both were too yeah yeah i mean that's a an amazing blend right there of writers and producers oh man right that's yeah. that's the, that's an a team there that's mm. that's a fellowship of the uh tintin <laughs> yeah <laughs> so yeah i i'd love to i hope that that's what he um he goes for next personally but... yeah i wonder what is next i i, I know he, there's been like a world war one zombie movie he's talked about for years i'd love to see him get to make that okay um, uh but yeah I, i'm not i'm not ter- terribly sure what what he's up to these days hmm I mean, it's safe. buying airplanes. Apparently, he buys lots of airplanes. I was going to say, I imagine he's got all the money in the world to just sort of sit back and retire. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's maybe let's talk about the Beatles for a while. All right. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we should go back to some of his earlier stuff. That oh, we yeah. Skipped over, no, I, please do. I suppose. Please do. Uh, I mean, so there is Meet the Feebles, the sophomore film. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know much about that, Harley? No, I don't. I, I, oh. did, I did click it open earlier. Hang on, let's have a look. It's one of those films that I enjoy exists more than I enjoy watching it. It's not a good film. <laughs> but what so it's 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 a puppet film. It's a puppet film. It's a take, it's a spoof of the Muppets, right. but it's done in a splat stick style. It's lots of body humor. The Muppets are all they're banging each other, they're on drugs, oh, the frog wow. is a crack addict. <laughs> Right. There's they're killing each other. I think the hippo like pulls out a machine gun and blasts everyone. I watched the rewatched the first ten minutes again yesterday, just kind of oh my reacquaint myself. Goodness. <laughs> so it th- that is one where like it feels like the tone got away from him a bit. But right. I will what I will say about this film is 
I, I really want them. He's talked for a while about redoing his original films and doing 4K releases. I would love oh. to see them remaster this. I think a big problem with the film is that you just you can't see or hear what's going on very well. And it's so fast and rapid fire, it's easy to get lost and, and it's, it's a little muddy. So I think I think it would improve with a remaster. I, I do hope they do that someday or and at least give us a commentary that we can hear him explain himself <laughs> over the course of the film. Yeah, that feels like quite a jump, you know, to, to sort of go to something like that. Some weird Muppet spoof parody sort of in the middle of all yeah. this horror stuff and, and crime drama, you know. Well, I mean, it, it's, it fits in with his splat stick and his naughty period mm. quite well. Um, but yeah, it does. It's it's going for more straight comedy than like comedic horror or okay. comedic fantasy or comedic adventure. Um, and I think that did maybe show some of his his shortcomings. Mm. Uh, I did mention his follow up, Dead Alive or Brain Dead, again to most of the world. Yeah, yeah just an amazing film and what i do love is he talks about i think he met fran walsh on with while making meet the feebles and he's talked about how with brain dead that was like his introduction to story that's when he learned how to tell stories and mm. uh, you know three-act structure and character arc and you know more than just uh, a collection of scenes of things happening that everything leads to something and you and you and you can tell like mm. yes it's it is an outrageous horror film. You haven't seen it, Harley? No. I would suggest this one. Like, even if you're not a horror fan, I think this one could work because it is. Uh, it's like like James Gunn's films. It's as much a comedy as it is a horror film, and right. the blood and guts are there as punchlines, not to make you squeamish per se. Sort of more like uh, uh, a Shaun of the Dead type thing, then I guess. A, a little bit. I mean, yeah. it's it's definitely broader than that, but okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean. That's what it's designed to do. But but it's really great. Like again, and you can tell that like he is learning story structure and like I think what sets it apart from a lot of other Gorefests is you do like I mean saying it's well written might be a stretch. I mean I think uh. it's well written, but but to say that like the script is what you look at would be a stretch, but you care just enough. Like they put just enough effort into getting you to care about the characters and their objectives and their story. Uh to, to get you on the road, and then when you have a house full of zombies being chopped up by a lawnmower, mm. uh, you can just sit back and enjoy that right. because everything else has been laid in place for you. The foundations are there. When they're trying to put a zombie baby in a I blender, I, I use this joke on another podcast, but I'll do it again here. Mm. You know the stakes of why that baby needs to go in the blender. You're in. You're invested into this moment. And uh, wow, it works so well, Harley. The Dead Alive is such a fun movie. Hmm. I can't imagine that how you would set that up, but I mean, fair enough, I guess. <laughs> You'd have to see it. You'd that's, have to see it. That's another feat in itself, I suppose. Yeah. Check out the trailer at least. It's so good. Okay. So many good one-liners in that film. Right. Um, yeah. And I guess these are all. I kick ass for the Lord. <laughs> right. That's that's a good line. That's a good line from the movie. Are these... Your mother ate my dog. Another good line from the movie. Is this all made in in New Zealand? I'm presuming as well. This is all still like, that was, backyard. Yeah, that, I think. And so, yeah, that I think it is one of those things, where, like you said, like, uh, you know, him coming from New Zealand is kind of a, uh, how'd you put it, uh, almost kind of an obstacle. But in some mm -hmm. ways, like, he was kind of a big fish in a small pond. Like, a lot of these just goofy, gory films were financed by the uh, the New Zealand Film Commission. Like, he got a grant to finish Bad Taste. Mm. Uh, Meet the Feebles, I think, was financed by them. Bad Taste was, so... Huh. Uh, like he 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 did have opportunity coming from yeah 
kind of like a smaller pond, basically. Ah, okay. Interesting, interesting. And yeah, he just kind of moves up from there. It seems to be that's the. Well, and then he got his big holly. Well, and then we got yeah. uh, Forgotten Silver, which is kind of his War of the Worlds. Oh right, um, yes. Yeah, so that's it's... probably his his least known project is kind of this mockumentary about this New Zealand filmmaker who was actually the first to do everything, the first person to film in sound, the first person to film in color, but mm-hmm. like he's been forgotten to time. All of his uh, footage was lost or, you know, he was written out of the history books. Huh. And uh, it's quite amusing. It's a lot of fun because Peter Jackson basically plays a character. He's playing himself, yeah. but he's like, you know, introducing this and like, well, this is how we discover this. And I do, I, I think, I wish Peter Jackson would kind of perform more. He's in, again, he plays two roles in, in Bad Taste and mm. he's just having a blast. Um, but so, yeah, it's a, it's a mockumentary, but apparently they didn't, you know, there was nothing saying that it was fake. And apparently a lot of people in New Zealand thought, uh, thought this uh, filmmaker was real and they were getting all filled with national pride that New Zealand was the first to do all this and apparently were quite upset when they realized they had uh, had one pulled over on them. <laughs> that's incredible. I know. So it's like this great little kind of like War of the Worlds moment that's yeah. that has kind of been forgotten to time. Like no, no one really knows this about the director of Lord of the Rings had this moment. Yeah. I mean, and he did that was 95 as well. So not that long ago that he managed to pull that over everybody. yeah right yeah <laughs> that's incredible it's a, yeah it's worth checking out it's, it's a short i think it's only like an hour long it was made for tv mm. uh, but it's 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 quite fun and then the frighteners yeah yeah i think was his first big hollywood film that he got to do and, okay. and again they just gave him the money and said all right go to new zealand make your film yeah. set in northeast america which I think I think adds to it <laughs> yeah. because it does give it like this weird otherworldly feel. Like it do, it just feels a little off, a little a little odd. All these hills and the style of houses and such. But mm. yeah, the Frighteners. Have you seen that one? No, I'm just having a look at it now. Uh, Michael J. Fox as well. Yeah, so, oh, that's quite a... Jeffrey Combs. Yeah, I think yeah. not my introduction to Jeffrey Combs, but when I learned to love him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. This is another one I highly suggest. I mean, this right. is this film has gotten kind of ignored to its detriment it was supposed to be a halloween release i think two things happened with it it was supposed to be a halloween release and it probably should have been a pg-13 film right but for whatever reason they pulled it ahead to the summer and then slapped it with an r rating and danny elfman who did the score has a great interview on it where he's like Mm. yeah so i took my kid to that and when we left my kid was like at who was 13 at the time Mm. i think was like so what in that movie was i not supposed to see oh okay Uh, yeah so i think it because of those, like it just no one went to watch it. it. It was kind of a bit of a failure, but anyone who seeks it out now loves this movie. It is so much fun. Yeah, because it's, it's 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 listed here as like a comedy fantasy horror and not yeah like a straight horror, I guess. Yeah, I mean the horror scenes are quite. It starts out with a pretty good horror scene that are quite good. Mm. Um, Jake Busey, I think, is right. He's in it, mm. and. Uh, so that he plays the serial killer and he is quite frightening. I mean, the horror elements work really well, but it is more of a comedy in the vein of Ghostbusters. It's J- Michael J. Fox is a con man who w- can see ghosts. And with the help of these ghosts, he cons people like the ghosts go and haunt the house. And then mm. he shows up and pretends to exterminate them. And, right. Uh, and then, then these malicious ghosts show up that only he can see and has to deal with. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a really good film. Oh, that sounds like quite an interesting concept. It's, yeah, it's kind of almost like a sort of, 
I don't know, a slightly more intense Ghostbusters for the science of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Mm. And, and yeah, it's just kind of a shame that it's, it's been forgotten. Yeah, and it seems to be in this run of films that he's making in the 90s, and then the next thing is Lord of the Rings. So it's like, I guess that was kind of his next stepping stone into this, right? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, he's working in Hollywood. He's got someone like Michael J. Fox on, and I could see how you could do a little bit of a hop, skip, and a jump to, to something then. Yeah, I mean, again, he was probably writing on the coattails of uh, Heavenly Creatures still with the mm. Academy Award nomination and just uh, yeah, critical uh, success with that. That yeah, I could totally see how that happens, and I I'm gotta say, I just I've, I didn't know half of this stuff. I've really enjoyed just just chatting with you about it. Cause... Oh, good. Well, yeah. If nothing else, then I'm I'm happy to to share the love of Peter Jackson. Yeah, PJ. it seems like a really interesting discography and the, the sort of thing i'm taking away from this is that he has this kind of still to this day this sort of grounded feel to what he does mm-hmm. and that again from what you've said before it's clearly still inspiring to filmmakers mm-hmm. right yeah yeah i think i think that's true yeah still a little bit grounded again so much as like uh the hobbit maybe uh left the ground a little bit compared to lord of the rings <laughs> yeah uh he still gave it the old college try. And then and I, it definitely feels like he's still pushing himself. Like, again, mm. he's now entering this, this world of documentaries. And um, he doesn't seem, I guess, depending to see what he goes forward with. But he doesn't seem too keen to just sit on his coattails and do the same thing he's done. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it could be easy, right? Just to kind of say, I'm done. See you later. But yeah. Yeah. He's still got or just be surprises. like, yeah, get, give me the next big fantasy spectacle. I'll throw another one of those together. Right, um, yeah, that that's the thing I find fascinating about this is he could just be a big budget blockbuster director, you think, mm-hmm. on the back of this, and yet from what we've seen, he's, he seems to be a little bit reluctant to fall into that. Yeah, it's kind of almost been thrust upon him again. Because yeah. you could look at his discography and be like, well, I went Lord of the Rings to King Kong to The Hobbit, but again, he he didn't want to direct The Hobbit, mm. and uh, he didn't want to do King Kong so soon, but... Yeah, you know when when opportunity strikes, uh, I guess when you have the weight of Middle Earth on your shoulders. Yeah, yeah, I think you may as well give it a go. And who, yeah. I, I suppose with products like that, uh, I say products, properties like sure. like King Kong, I guess maybe he was worried that someone else would have just been passed to it, and it, yeah, might oh have, yeah, they might yeah. have just been like, oh, I could have done that. You know? so yeah, he wasn't going to miss a shot. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's fair enough. Um, I, I'm curious, Cameron. Is is there anything else you want to sort of bring up with uh, with Peter Jackson? Oh, I mean, I think we covered most of it. Mm. Um, we hit all my notes, Harley. Cool. Yeah, you, you asked the right questions. Oh, good. <laughs> I did something <laughs> right. That's good to know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I love love your uh, interviews. The ones I've heard and. And, uh, and and felt very at ease under your your questioning. Good, good. That's that's always well, thank you. my main thing. As long as you know you've, you've had a good time and you haven't felt pressured or anything, that's that's awesome. That's good to know. Love conversations with fellow fans. So brilliant. Um, so I to tell you what, why don't you take this opportunity then to tell the oh. good people where they can find you and what you're up to? Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, uh, pimp two things. So I've got my personal podcast, which is uh, Green Shirt, a newbie's trek through the next generation, where I am watching Star Trek: The Next Generation for the first time. Somehow, despite being a big nerd, I never watched it. Uh, so now I'm doing so 
podcast style with some friends who are uh, more well-versed. We're in the middle of season five now. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Uh, I've been told that you can enjoy it whether you are a Star Trek newbie like myself or a diehard fan. We try to straddle that. Uh, you can find that green shirt, a newbie strike to the next generation on any podcatcher. You can find us usually at Twitter at greenshirt87 as our handle. Uh, we love interacting with everyone there. We're also on Facebook.com slash greenshirtpodcast. Um, and that's, the, that's, that's the, probably the best ways to get a hold of us if you want to. Another project I'm involved with that uh, very much doves into what we were just talking about mm -hmm. is an all-puppet horror film that uh, wow. a buddy of mine made and that I was uh, closely part of. Okay. Yes, definitely inspired by, we were both huge Peter Jackson fans and inspired by him in general and Meet the Feebles to a degree. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, it's quite something. It's kind of going through the festival circuit right now. We uh there is some interesting news that I can't share, but we are still looking for distribution. So we're really just looking for people to kind of check out the trailer, talk about it, try to get um, excitement built around it. Puppetcore.com is where you can go to find the trailer for Frank and Zed. Okay. It's a movie about a Frankenstein monster and a zombie who have the symbiotic relationship until uh, the villagers show up one day to create an orgy of blood. It is, um, yeah, I think if you take... <laughs> If you blend Meet the Feebles with Dead Alive with Lord of the Rings, that's the movie this is. Uh, wow. And it really is something, just check out the trailer. It's really uh, cool looking. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot out there like it right now, and, and I think people would enjoy it. Interesting. Cool. Well, yeah, if yeah. you uh, send me that over, I can put links in the show notes for people. Oh, for sure, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, I guess all that's left to say really then is just thank you, Cameron, for coming on. Thank you, Harley, for having me. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, I and everyone, get your uh, shark yums to Harley here. That's, yes, that's how I connected with him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you were kind enough to send me stuff uh, for the the, uh, the musical bane of my existence currently. <laughs> <laughs> have no one to blame but yourself. I do. Yeah, that's what happens when I guest on other people's podcasts and make wild promises. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's nearly there. And he's absolutely right. If you've got yums, we'll take this opportunity to say send them over. Cameron, you and your daughter sent me them. I absolutely love that's them. Right. So. If you're listening and you want to get involved, yeah, do it. Um, but yeah, on that note, thank you very much, Cameron, for coming on. Thanks for having me. And there we have it. A massive thank you to Cameron for coming onto the podcast and sharing your love of all things Peter Jackson. I think you guys will agree with me when I say that that was a fantastic episode. And I gained so much insight from that. It really, really was just kind of mind-blowing how much you can get from someone's creative works and it's the kind of conversation we love to have here at fundamentals diving into the things in pop culture and, and hopefully you'll go back maybe look at some of his older films with a whole new level of appreciation i know that i certainly will be doing that and if you want to hear more from cameron then go and check out his fantastic podcast the green shirt podcast all linked in the show notes for you as well as the trailer for the puppet horror film that he's doing with his friend it's quite something i have to say but it's all there in the show notes if you want to go and see more of cameron's creative works as always i'd like to give a massive thank you to the resident artist for the show alex who designs the fantastic looking logo and twitter banner if you like what you see you can reach out to him via the links provided in the show notes to commission him for your very own artwork i can guarantee you will not be disappointed Speaking of that wonderful logo, you can now get it on a t-shirt, a mug, a tote bag, a fridge magnet, pin badge, all sorts of good stuff by heading over 
to the official T Public store for the podcast. That's right, the podcast now has merchandise. And I have to say, I couldn't be happier with the results. It's a wonderful, wonderful set of designs that they've got there on the uh, T Public website. Had a nice little back and forth with some people over there. And yeah, I just am so thrilled with the outcome. So. If you like what you see in the podcast logo, as I said before, and you fancy supporting the podcast in a small way, then by all means, head over to the link that will now be in the show notes and check out some official Fundamentals podcast merch. I would greatly appreciate it. And of course, if you want to just support the podcast for free, the best way to do that is to share it with friends. You can do this on social media. You can tag me in it as well so I can say thank you. You can just tell people and really it's word of mouth is honestly the best way for this show to grow so any and all support you give me is greatly appreciated and finally another way that you can support the podcast is by leaving me a lovely five-star review or rating on your favorite podcatcher if you do so please let me know because i would love to give you a shout out on the podcast as i did for cameron in the previous episode of fundamentals as he was kind enough to leave me a really lovely five-star review on Podchaser. I believe that Apple and Spotify also have the ability to do so. Google, there's a whole bunch of them out there. So whatever you're listening on, if you're kind enough to click five stars, please tell me so I can say thank you. Right, that's it from me. I'll be back again in a few weeks' time with a completely different guest on a completely different subject. So until next time, stay tuned and stay safe.